Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. morning. Go ahead and uh, take a seat. Good to see you all. I am Pastor Jeff. If we haven't had a chance to be introduced, I'd love to catch up with you after worship. Good to see you all here today. Um, let me ask you a question, not out of any personal experience or anything, obviously, but uh, have any of you ever been lost in the woods? Uh, a few hands went up. In fact, um, Matt, we had a hike with men of faith yesterday. Did everyone come back? Not, not sure, we think. If you're not here, raise your hand, and we'll send out a search party for you. Uh, our older son, Ben, when he was in Boy Scouts uh, on one camp out, they were planning on getting up early Saturday morning uh, to go out on a hike, and the plan was to go several miles around a loop, and they had topographical maps and compasses and uh, experienced scouts and leaders, so uh, they didn't get lost. They, they, they didn't have any problems, but... What if they were in territory they'd never been in? What, what if they didn't have maps, or what if the maps weren't accurate? What if the leaders were not trustworthy? Or what if their compasses even led them the wrong way? Uh, in fact, those of you who have any experience uh, hiking or climbing, uh, you know that magnetic north is not actually the same as geographic north. Magnetic north does not line up with the North Pole, and so you have to adjust how you read across the map for that fact. Uh, in fact, magnetic north moves over time, and some scientists estimate that it may flip every several thousand years or so. Sometimes life can feel like that, can it? A, a little disorienting? Like we're not really sure how to get where we're trying to get, and if there are guides that we can trust, and if there are markers that will point us in the right direction, and life can be disorienting. We hear sometimes confusing, even contradictory advice and recommendations and messages from media and leaders and uh, friends and authority figures. And of course, all over the news, not just recently, but as long as I've been alive, uh, people who publicly tell us you know, how we ought to live and how we ought to be directing our lives don't live up to the standards that they set for us and others, whether that's politicians or pundits or celebrities or sports stars or 
even religious leaders at times. Because even the experts don't always know what they're talking about. Trail Magazine is one of the most widely published hiking outdoor magazines in the United Kingdom. And in their 2004 February issue, they had given instructions for hikers who were going to climb up Ben Nevis, the highest peak in Great Britain. It's only 4,400 feet, so it's not a huge thing, but it can be really tricky coming down, and, and the path can be treacherous, especially in bad weather. So they gave very explicit instructions about how to make it safely down off of the peak of the mountain. The instructions were wrong. In fact, they were so wrong that it turns out if you followed them, you would go off the north face of the mountain into a 1,000-foot ravine. But don't worry, they published a correction the next month. Seriously, how do you know what to aim at? And, and how do you find a fixed reference point in life? Is, is there anyone, is there anything who can guide us, who can help us, who can lead us in the right direction and, and even guarantee that, that we could get where we need to go? Well, we're continuing our look at this letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the believers in the city of Colossae. So go ahead and open your Bibles to the letter of Colossians in the New Testament uh, in your Bibles. If you haven't opened them already or if you want to pull out one of those black Bibles in the seat in front of you, that's page 1169. And this morning we're starting in Colossians 2, verse 6. Paul starts with this, therefore. Now, every time we see that, we're supposed to pause and ask what the therefore is there for. It's a reminder. It's a marker. Paul is saying, in light of what I've said before, this is, this is going to be now the summary, the application of what you've heard. So just a, a real quick reminder. Paul is right into these Christians he's never met, saying how, how pleased he is to hear about their faith in the Lord, how he's been praying for them, and, and how he wants to help them grow in their understanding of this Jesus that they've come to put their faith in. And, and we saw in chapter 1 this the middle of it, this beautiful picture of this glorious Jesus, the Lord of all creation, the one who sustains everything. And, and then Paul's reminder of how he is working and praying for these believers in Colossae and, and encouraging them in their faith and, and how in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so this is what he wants them, what he wants us to know about Christ. Therefore, because all this is true about Jesus, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Or your translation might say, so continue in him. Now that verb is an imperative. It's, it's like a command. He's saying, keep on doing it. Keep on walking with Christ. Keep continuing in him. And walk is this image of a pattern of life, a direction. It's a life that aligns with the one you're following. And then Paul gives this series of images that describe how we walk with the Lord and what happens as a result. We are rooted like a tree. We are solidly built like a house. We're firmly established like a, a legal document we're overflowing, abounding, like a jug of fresh water, a refreshing drink to others. All of these images give a picture of a life of 
confidence and security as we walk with Christ because we're focused on Christ. And so Paul is saying, here's here's what it looks like to walk in Christ in a way that gives us a a glorious confidence. And the first image he uses is this one. That confidence comes from being rooted in Christ. That's what he says in verse 8. Rooted and built up in him, see to it, he says, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, Paul is, is not criticizing knowledge or wisdom. Again, remember, he's told us that in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul himself reads philosophy. He uses philosophy. Remember when he's in Athens appealing to the, the wise men of that city, he quotes their own philosophers. The empty philosophy that Paul is warning about here is philosophy, thought, knowledge that, that is only about human wisdom, that is based on the basic principles or elemental spirits of the world. Now, There's a lot of debate in commentaries about what that means and what Paul is getting at. And so it's probably about a a reference to the pagan deities, the local gods that people worshipped, that even though they didn't really exist, they had some kind of power because people gave them power. And then then it's probably also flowing out of that, the, the superstitions that would come out of this fear of these forces that were out there You know, in our day and age, we might say something like horoscopes, right? Like what star you're born under controls your life and shapes your personality. It it might be a reference to kind of self-righteous rule-keeping. You know, this, this human idea, this religious impulse that if I keep the right rules, that I'll be right with God, and I, and at least I'll be doing better than others. It could be tied to human traditions and social norms and expectations, you know, like loyalty to family or parties or nations or race that gives us identity and security. That's the kind of thing Paul's talking about. And and the reason he brings it up is because it's a problem for us. Our very first parents, remember, started this whole process. They wanted a knowledge, they wanted control, they wanted to be able to own and possess without any reference to God. I will decide for myself. And and that's our struggle too, isn't it? That's what Paul is critiquing. Not philosophy, but the search for some kind of knowledge or wisdom or insight. Not that leads us to greater worship of God, but that actually says, okay, I've got what I need. I don't need to listen to God now. I've got it figured out. I've I've got the smarts. I've got the wisdom. Now I can go off on my own. It's just appealing to human pride. And apparently there were teachers coming into this church offering them some greater wisdom, something more than Jesus that would give them the the security and the knowledge that they needed. And Paul says, no, no, Christians go farther by going deeper. My greatest need is not some other knowledge, it's deeper knowledge of Christ. Could could we affirm that together? That my greatest need is deeper knowledge, not just about Jesus, but a deeper knowledge of Jesus. My greatest problem is 
gospel forgetfulness. My greatest danger is drifting away from the gospel. My greatest privilege is being invited to know and grow in Jesus Christ. And so here's this interesting paradox kind of that that Paul creates here, that to grow in Christ is to actually go down deeper into what we've already received. And, And that is absolutely in contrast to our age and and the way I and most of us live where we want it new, we want it fast, we want the latest knowledge, I want immediate access to information, I want to learn new studies, I want new research, I want new insights, and that's what we value. Christian maturity is going deeper in the gospel that we have already received. We're rooted in it in the way that a a tree is rooted in, in good soil. So it doesn't mean that just because it's old, it's true either. We don't hold on to our traditions or our understandings kind of blindly. They all have to be held underneath the gospel and what's central to our faith. Some of you may be familiar with the Babylon Bee. It's this uh, Christian satire website. Uh, I think it's written by Christians because they, they've got us pegged pretty well, and it's, it's done tongue-in-cheek, but with, with love, I think. There was a recent headline that said, Uh, Local Calvinists' sense of superiority visible from outer space. And I I can laugh at that because I went to Calvinist seminary, and there's a lot that I appreciate about Reformed Seminary, but we laugh because there's, you know, kind of a truth. Like, we all know that guy, right? Because there's some system, there's some knowledge that somehow becomes more important than the gospel itself. Now, if that's true of anyone in particular, I'm, you know, we're not pointing fingers, but think about the things that maybe we just have accepted. You know, for many Christians, for many years, it was obvious that slavery and racial superiority were clearly supported by the Bible. You know, that white Europeans were clearly better than other people, and that justified a, a lot of things that we did in the name of Jesus. I heard a respected pastor in St. Louis once explain how we could know from the Bible that the instrument best suited for worship on Sunday morning was the pipe organ. And I wondered, well, that's really interesting. I wonder how they worshiped, you know, for thousands of years before the pipe organ was invented and when David didn't have a pipe organ. See, as, as we are rooted deeper in the gospel and in Jesus Christ, it's going to challenge us. It's going to challenge the things that maybe we've accepted or believed or traditions, human traditions. It'll also challenge us in the way that we maybe want to tend to attach ourselves to the latest philosophies and the newest fads and the cultural shifts. We have real confidence when we're rooted in Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us. And Paul goes on to expand on that. Confidence then comes from being built up in Christ. Remember, Paul says, rooted and built up in him. Look at what Paul goes on to explain in verses 9 and 10. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Have you ever uh, had this experience? You, you go off to a conference, a retreat, uh, a seminar, Uh, concert maybe, and uh, there's powerful speakers and moving music and compelling testimonies, and, uh, and, and maybe God really touches your heart in some 
particular way there. You come back and you're processing through it and it's just, you make some significant decision, some, some you know, commitment maybe, and you feel a little like Moses coming down off the mountain, right? Like you, you wonder if people around you can see the glow of God's reflected glory from your face. And, and then you come home to a dirty sink and a lawn that needs to be mowed and the same job and the week next the glow is fading a little, and, and then the week after that, the dishwasher breaks, and you, your boss is being difficult, and, and maybe you start to wonder, what in the world happened? Why, what is my life even worth? And See, we, we yearn for those kind of mountaintop experiences of, of God's presence. But did you catch what Paul said in verse 9? In Jesus, you have been filled with the fullness of him who fills everything. We have fullness in Christ as much as we can ever experience in this life. Now, I really treasure conferences and retreats and seminars and even vacations. You know, it it can really be helpful to get away, to just focus more on, on being quiet, on seeking and listening and worshiping God. And, and in Ephesians, Paul appeals to the believers there to keep on being filled with the Spirit. But I think Paul is pointing out here, there is no special place that we have to go to to get more of Jesus. There is no right methodology. There is no secret formula. As as soon as we start thinking that, what we're kind of implicitly saying is what Jesus did isn't enough. I don't have enough of him already. And I need to do something to make sure that I really experience him. That's how people gather followers and, you know, claiming that I can unlock spiritual fullness in your life and I can bring you closer into the presence of God if you follow my methodology. And, of course, it's for sale in the book that I have out in the lobby. And and if we just adopt these new things, then, then we'll really experience more of God. Listen again to what Paul says in verse 9. Can can we underline this in our Bibles and in our lives? You have been filled in him. You have been filled in him. Who fills all things? Who is the head of all rule and authority? Christ in you, Paul says in the end of chapter 1, is the hope of glory. Right now, Christ in you. Any movement, any ministry that holds up some Christian celebrity or some book or some insight or some teaching as the voice, the power, the wisdom that that you need to get more of Jesus, you're going to be really careful about that. There is no secret sauce getting more of God's fullness in your life, more fellowship, more blessing. You have been filled in Christ. And Paul is underscoring this because he wants us to get this, that God's plan is to flood the lives of men and women and young people and ultimately all of creation with his power and his love and his life and his presence. And he has already begun to put that plan in action through Jesus Christ. So that if you are in Christ, you have been filled. We are not what we will be one day. 
but what else could we need? What, what other source are we looking for? What other power do we think is out there somewhere that could be greater than what God has already given us in Christ? Confidence comes from being built up in Christ, being full of Christ. And Paul goes on to explain more of what that looks like. Remember he said, and being established in the faith. That means being made sure, being strengthened, becoming stronger in our understanding of the faith. Confidence comes from being established, sure of our faith. What faith is that? Look in verses 11 and 12. You were circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands, putting off the body of the flesh, a circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul is saying, listen, if you are in Christ, you have a new identity, you have a new power. You are dead to an old life. Paul's saying you were circumcised. It's already taken place. And he's drawing on this Old Testament imagery of circumcision as the, the mark, the physical mark, the symbol of God's people. From Abraham forward, circumcision was this physical sign of belonging to God and being part of God's people, part of his covenant community. But Paul here connects physical circumcision to something that was anticipated even back in the Old Testament. Moses tells the people, circumcise your hearts and not just your bodies. And Jeremiah anticipates this new covenant, he says, where God will write his law on our hearts and they will know me and I will remember their sins no more. And now Paul is saying, that is what God has done in Christ We've been circumcised, not in the flesh, but in relationship with Jesus Christ, being united with him in his death and resurrection. And baptism pictures that. Now, Christians disagree over the, the mode of baptism and, and who's an appropriate recipient of baptism. We practice baptism of believers by immersion because we believe from passages like this the baptism is about declaring your public profession of what God has done in your heart and life. In baptism, when we go under the water, we're showing that I am united with Christ in his death. I am dying to an old life. My old sinful life is symbolically cut off and buried, and I'm raised with him to a new life and a new power just as Jesus was raised so that we can walk in new life. It's it's not that baptism does anything to save us, but it's a picture of what Christ has done in us and, and for us. And that's what we're celebrating next Sunday. If, if you belong to Christ and you've never identified with him publicly, what he has done in your life through baptism, we'd love to help you do that next Sunday. So connect with one of the pastors and uh, we'd love to celebrate that with you. But as a result of being baptized, the church now becomes the family, the people of God, where we are loved and welcomed and nurtured. The church becomes the context, the community, where we are established, where we are built up, where we grow in our faith. 
by the support and the teaching and the nurture and the encouragement and the exhortation and the example of all of us here. So that as we come together, we grow in the gospel and it it sinks down deeper into our hearts and our lives that, that we are being established more firmly in what baptism is pointing out. See, we need to grab hold of this, and we need one another to help us do this, that that we are raised to a new kind of life with Christ. To believe that God raised Jesus from the dead is to believe that God has power over every authority. He has power over sin. He has power over death. He has power over hell. He has power over every spiritual force of evil. What gives me confidence is what is declared about me in baptism. That I have died to an old life and I am alive to a new life. And I need help to understand that and to live it out. That's why we encourage people to get connected in small groups. Because there's no way on a Sunday morning in a group this size that that we're going to know each other well enough to be able to strengthen one another in our faith. We need to be in smaller groups where we know what's going on in our lives and we can encourage each other and pray for each other and confess our sins to each other and forgive one another and remind each other of who we are in Christ. Confidence comes from being strengthened, being established in our faith. And then look at what is the result of this. Confidence leads to abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding in thanksgiving. And Paul gives us this reminder of why we have reason to overflow with thanks. Starting in verse 13. You were dead. Dead. In trespasses. And the uncircumcision of your flesh. Ungodliness. But God made us alive with him, having forgiven all our trespasses, canceling the record of death that was against us. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the powers and authorities, put them to shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ, or in the cross, it could be. God has forgiven all our debts. All of them. There is no condemnation for us. By canceling the record that was against us, we were dead, not just guilty, but dead and separated from God. But just as the prodigal son, as his father said, this son was dead and now he's alive, we have to celebrate. Now God has made us alive in Christ and we are called to celebrate. Do you see the connection of what God is saying here to to Jesus' own life and ministry? Do you remember when Jesus goes to see Mary and Martha and they had sent word that their brother Lazarus was ill and Jesus waits and Lazarus dies and he's standing at Lazarus' tomb and Martha is saying, Lord, I know my brother will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. See, 
for the Jews who really believed and hoped in God, they believed that there was life after death, but that was going to happen one day way far off in the future. Do you remember what Jesus says to Martha? I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you see what Paul is getting at here? The resurrection has already begun in Jesus. So that even though we live in this world, in this old broken dying world as exiles and strangers, we are now also already alive with eternal resurrection life in Christ. That is reason to celebrate. That is reason to say amen. How did God make us alive? He forgave us. All our sins. We sang earlier about God's reckless love. It doesn't mean careless and ill-considered. It's related to that word reckon, to count against, to take heed of. And, And I think if we hear the song the right way, what we're trying to say is that God is not reckoning our sins against us. He forgives us because he reckons them against his own son. His own sinless son whose blood is shed so that the record of debt that was against us is nailed to the cross and left there. Now there's uncertainty and discussion over what exactly Paul has in mind with this record of debt. I think the most likely answer is that he's talking about the law of God and the penalty that we deserve as lawbreakers and sinners. It's the law and our sins that stand against us and condemn us. And and it's important that we recognize that because the law that we sometimes pretend that we can do a pretty good job keeping is what actually condemns us. The law says, do not steal, do not envy, honor your parents, and I take what I am not due. And sometimes I am envious of what others have. And I don't always honor my parents. And most of all, I don't honor my heavenly father and make him the singular love of my life as he deserves. We don't even keep the rules that we make for ourselves, much less God's law. But, but God... But God wonderfully cancels the debt by the payment of his son. As the representative for his people, Jesus obeys the law because we can't, and he pays the debt that we cannot and dies in our place so that the law no longer condemns us. There's this old Christian poem attributed to the Puritan John Berridge. Run, John, and work, the law commands but gives me neither feet nor hands. Much sweeter news the gospel brings, which bids me fly and gives me wings. Oh, does your heart overflow with thankfulness to Jesus at that? That now even the law that was an enemy, even though it was good in itself because all it could do was condemn us, now the law is good. And now because we are alive in Christ, now we can even Walk in God's commands with a new ability and a new desire to please the Father. Because Jesus has passed judgment on 
the rulers and authorities, he's disarmed them. I think Paul is talking about the, the power structures, the symbolic idols of the nations and peoples, the way of doing things apart from God. See, Rome and Israel were the greatest government and the highest religion that the ancient world knew. And they conspired together to place Jesus on the cross because they could not stand his claim of sovereignty over them. So they stripped him naked and put him on a cross to humiliate him and celebrated their triumph. But God says in the cross, I am actually stripping those powers naked and I'm holding them up to contempt and showing that they are powerless because Jesus is the rightful ruler. He has broken the power of all these world, of all the world systems who are all rulers and usurpers and traitors to God because they are not aimed at loving and worshiping Jesus and serving his will. And so all the ways of this world, pride and violence and self-seeking and greed and racism and the power of politics and superstition and prejudice, all of them have been defeated and disarmed, you see, because Jesus has brought us into his kingdom where now as his children... We live by a different set of values. The way the world works has no authority over us. And now we live in his kingdom that is shaped by meekness and mercy and forgiveness and patience and love and kindness and gentleness. It's not the way the world works. Are you thankful that you live in that kind of a kingdom, though? We're not just to be a little bit thankful, we're, we're to abound in thankfulness, to overflow in thankfulness because of what God has done for us in Christ. Oh, that our, that our lives would be tapestries, symphonies, skyscrapers of gratitude and thanksgiving to God for what he has done for us in Christ. Because as we remind ourselves as we go deeper, as we are established and built up in this gospel, how can it not produce an overflow of gratitude and joy? Just as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive him? And, and let me stop and say, if you have not received him, oh, today, come to him. Come to him. We receive him by faith, through repentance and trust and love and humility, and, and it produces joy and gratitude and awe and confidence and excitement and, and witness. How do we continue in Christ the same way that we came to him? By faith and trust and belief. We don't ever graduate from the gospel. There is no other wisdom. There is no bigger insight of, of God that we need. The gospel defines us from here on out. We live in it as people who remind ourselves we are deeply flawed and desperately needy, but even more deeply loved, even more powerfully helped and changed. There is no confidence, security, guidance ultimately outside of Christ. And so there's no reason for us to be confused and 
anxious and uncertain. If you are in Christ, you have been given the fullness of Christ. You have access to the treasures of God's wisdom and knowledge. You're no longer under the authority of deceptive spiritual forces or worldly powers. If we are in Christ, we are in him who has all life and authority. So just as you received Christ in love, in worship, in trust, in hope, in faith, in gratitude, walk in him. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, how we need these reminders. Reminders not just of what you have done and who you are for us in Christ, but the reminders of how we need to be more deeply rooted in you. How we need to be grounded and established in you so that our lives would overflow with gratitude, thanksgiving, and praise to you. Thank you, Father. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.